You are now listening to the Claim It Podcast with me, Trisha Huffman, also sometimes known as your joyologist. On this podcast, I am honored to have conversations with people who inspire and intrigue me, getting into the journey of their lives. Kind of like the nitty gritty, we do talk about the work that they are currently doing in the world or what they're passionate about their new project. For example, today's guest is Mara Glatzel, and her book, her book comes out the week that this comes out, and it's called Needy. So we definitely talk about Needy and why she wrote this book. But before we talk about that, we talk about how the heck did she get there to writing this book? I love going into the journey of my guests' lives so that you can see (laughs) that we all go through ups and downs and this and maybe that and I don't know and this and struggles. And the point is not to be like, oh, give up. Everybody has hard times and gets confused. No. I hope that by listening to other people's stories, you have more compassion for yourself. You give yourself another freaking chance and another one. See, it's not too late to make the choices that align to you. Uh, And trust me, I believe in every single episode, you will learn something amazing from these guests to be able to apply in your own life. So again, love this episode. It's so good. Make sure to stay tuned for the end talk about why we talk about needy. Okay. But Mara is an author, an intuitive coach, and a podcast host who helps humans stop abandoning themselves and start reclaiming their humanity through embracing their needs and honoring their natural energy rhythms. I mean, I bet you can guess someone who's all about needs and then someone who is about F the shoulds do the once, which is also a lot about needs. I freaking loved her and this conversation. All right, so let's get into it. If you haven't yet, please hit the follow or subscribe button and leave a review. Reviews matter. Reviews matter for podcasts and they matter for books. So go get Mara's book, give it a review. Go get my book, F the Shoulds Do the Once. Leave it a review. Leave a review for the podcast. I love you so much. If you do leave a review, screenshot it and send it to me at podcast at yourjoyologist.com and I'll send you a little gift. All right, here we go. So I love starting with, and you can go earlier than this, I love hearing about people in high school. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, what was life like for you in high school? Did you have any external pressure on like, this is what you should do with your life? Or did you feel like have any idea of this is who I will be? And- yeah, I was the kind of person who would be really fun and hanging out and doing all this stuff. And then late at night, be doing everything perfectly, like all of my schoolwork. So when I was a senior, there was a moment like at the end of the year where they had all of the people stand up who had gotten like the highest, highest grades or whatever. Um, I forget what it was called. And and there were only 10 of us. And I was, you know, it was a big school, maybe a little bit more, but it was not that many people. And they called my name and all of my friends were very surprised <laughs> because I was never visibly doing things. And I think that is <laughs> just shows a lot about the duality of my personality at that point. It was like really wanting to socially connect, really having my relationships be so important to me and wanting to take part in them, but also having 
a lot of ambitious drive around doing things and a lot of perfectionism around doing things perfectly. And it was, you know, high school is such a weird time. I, <laughs> that's why yeah, I love like, I came out when I was 14. Um, mm. I went to board, I went to boarding school. I should have backed up to say I was, all of this was happening okay. <laughs> at boarding school, which I feel like is also extra a lot in terms of dynamics around pressure and perfectionism and yeah, also social dynamics, relationship dynamics. So yeah, I didn't get enough sleep. I was very high strung and anxious, but having a good time. It was, it was just an odd, odd space. And I had, a you know, I, had a lot of struggles around letting my like people pleasing, letting myself be who I was. And I would say this is a, a thread kind of throughout my life, really having a high, uh, putting a lot of energy into micromanaging other people's perception of me, like wanting to be seen in a certain way, either as cool or as good or as smart or, and yeah. Yeah. It's exhausting, right? <laughs> I was a burnt out teenager. <laughs> yeah, because also when you were saying being social and then getting all the work done at night, when you then said you were at a boarding school, that's a whole different thing. Because yeah, it's not like you're going home and cramming. You're likely like even sharing yeah. bedrooms or something, right? Yeah. Or like, <laughs> Well, and also, you know, when you are a queer woman at boarding school and your girlfriend lives like across the hall from you, there's all this other, I mean, I basically just never slept is where, what this comes down to. It's like, I was doing homework. I was making out with my girlfriend. I was, you know, and you don't have the same kind of oversight. It's funny because my parents recently asked me if I would send my daughters to boarding school, which was kind of a categorically no um, even though I loved my time there so much, but I, I was like, I needed somebody to kind of have eyes on me. And I don't think, I think I would have benefited from that. <laughs> um, and was that, yeah, you said you came out when you were 14 and then, yeah, you had a girlfriend. Where the, was that pretty well embraced in your boarding school? It was a secret for... She was in the closet. Um, I mean, I was n not anything before I met her. I was, it was like the shock of a lifetime <laughs> that we ended up together. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, we, we, it was a secret because she was in the closet. And then later on when I dated other people, it became less so. And I would say it was really embraced. And I grew up in Provincetown in on Cape Cod, which is, uh, is a, a lot of things, but, um, has a very thriving queer community. My parents were very on board with it. So it was really hard for me to come out, not because I faced any resistance, but because I just didn't see it. It changed the way I saw myself. You know, I think if you grow up in a queer place, you think like, if I knew I was gay, I would know I was gay already. Like it was really a surprise for me. Mm. Um, 
Got it. Because you felt like since you lived in a place and had parents that you knew already embraced that, it wasn't like, you know, like I was at all Catholic schools. Yeah. And Catholic. Yeah, so no, it wasn't like that. <laughs> I'm there. <laughs> that like, but you're like, oh, I grew up in this environment where it was like, yeah, great. Like celebrated, whatever. Yeah. Love, love you, love and that. And then you were like, wait, what? Yeah. Me? And I think it's just, you know, it's so much about it felt really tender. I was the kind of kid, nobody ever told me to do my homework. My parents were not that kind of parents. And I very much had a well-formed understanding of what it meant to be good. And I was good at doing that, whatever that entailed. And yeah, it was hard to come out. I sobbed hysterically. I, I came out to my mother. I sobbed hysterically when I was coming out to her, it was like Thanksgiving break. I was getting back on the bus to go back to school. I was crying so much. It was such a big deal to tell her. And it was such a little deal for her. Like not even a pass. She didn't even call me for like a week and a half after. And I was just in turmoil during this time thinking, you know, I I don't even know what's happening. And she was just like, Oh, that like, yeah, that's fine. It's, It's good. It's no problem. It's great. Like, have, have, I mean, first of all, obviously, I was obsessed with this friend. And second of all, great, no problem. So it was definitely one of those things where it was harder for me. I, I've heard a similar story from people that, like, in their 40s, real, like, maybe not realized, but like, finally came to terms with they weren't straight. Maybe they didn't even know what they, where they were on the paradigm, but whatever. But like when they did start to open up about that to their life that they were like, he was like, nobody really cared. Like, <laughs> like they like cared, but they were just like, uh-huh. Yeah. Great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know I mean? It's like how much that can weigh on someone. Like, what will this mean about me? What are people? And you don't, you might not have even been thinking, what will people think? It's just that interesting thing of coming it for yourself accepting that for yourself and how interesting it can be like such a big thing when the people are really like, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's jump back into, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you're graduating from high school. Did, what did you do next? Did you have like when you were leaving high school of like, yeah, what, what am I going to do with my life? Or were you like, I'm definitely, you know, like me, my parents made me go to college. Yeah. I was going to go to college because that was the right thing to do for sure. So I did go to college. That's Um, what you do. (laughs) I went to a college that I called the College of Worcester, which is in Worcester, Ohio. And I had never been there before. They accepted me. They gave me the most money. One of my best friends went there. I kind of called her and said, is it cool? She said, yes. And I, you know, decided to go there. And when I was there, I really thought that I would be some kind of politician. Um, I had a track. I was very interested in international relations. I was a poli-sci. I was going to be a poli-sci major. Then I became a poli-sci minor. You know, I had a lot of um, interest in, yeah, in world history and in just politics, how things work and being involved in that kind of way. And as I was there for four years, I eventually decided to be an English major. And 
the last year at the College of Worcester, you have to write, do like an independent study. And it's pretty massive. I wrote 150 page memoir. And that piece, I mean, I think, you know, really, I went through that process. Uh, the, The memoir that I wrote was very much about sexuality and body politics. And from there, I um, started doing more of that work. I started having more of those conversations and started a blog in 2008 um, when blogs were very hot. And it became one of the... I think I started mine in 2008, maybe 2009. (laughs) And it became one of the bigger um, body image blogs that existed. It was called Medicinal Marzipan. And medicinal <laughs> and yeah, and it just it just like kind of moved forward from there. It's funny because recently I um have become very active in my local political scene and I'm on a bunch of different boards and I'm like I live in a very small town, uh, but there's a lot to do. And I do a lot lot of things. And I'm reconnecting with that younger version of myself who was like mock trial, um, very kind of interested in the inner workings. And it's fun because it, I, you know, I love to speak publicly. That's a part of my job running my business. I run retreats, I run, run workshops, but this is fun. It's like, um, yeah, it's it's it melds that what I do professionally with this personal political interest. And so that's been it's been really nice to return to that in adulthood and notice like, oh wow, yeah, that you know, I I there was a part of me that was so interested in that and those things just don't go away completely. It's fun to have it resurface. That's interesting. So you started the first of all, what an intense project, mm-hmm. I feel like, to write a memoir <laughs> as a like 21-year-old or something. Because <laughs> I, in my college, I went to a liberal arts college and I ended up taking like a philosophy of love class for like my philosophy class. And I was thinking it was going to like probably like help me find someone to love me probably when I signed it up. And it was like about self-love and we had to do these reports on like the narcissistic aspects of our parents and this. So that class was amazing, but like confronting. Mm -hmm. But I can't imagine like writing an entire (laughs) memoir at that age of like, what? Because I don't know. That's just, that's incredible, first of all. But so then, and is that what propelled you into then writing the blog? Like, or were you already sort of writing different things? You know what I mean? Like what set you off to be like, and now I will start again? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I would say I have a proclivity towards amazing and what did you say? Overwhelming? Intense? <laughs> I guess intense. Um, that's my wheelhouse. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I am as a, a human being way too much in that regard. I just am always having questions. There's not a conversation. Confronting is what you said. Oh gosh, I love that. Um, Confronting (laughs) is perfect. Uh, Yeah. There's no confronting conversation that I am not down to have. That is my whole life. That is true for me. So when I started the blog, I was really at this place where having lived as a person in a bigger body over the course of my life, having just 
dieted myself within an inch of myself and, you know, just gone through the ringer in that regard, I was trying to figure out a way to be in relationship with myself that was at worst neutral, um, but at best more accepting and more loving. And I live in the small town that I grew up in. And at that time, I mean, now everybody's having these conversations. It's great. But at that time in 2008, it felt like, you know, I don't drink. I want to just like sit and drink a cup of coffee and talk to people. Like, how do we love ourselves with all of this bullshit going on? I mean, seriously. And so I, I remember I started to write things online in the hopes that somebody out there would find me, I guess. Or, you know, over time, I was like having conversations with other people who have their own blogs and connecting with them through Facebook and then through Instagram and just building a community of humans that I didn't have that immediate access to. Because I felt really strongly about staying here. And I also felt strongly about needing a community, a specific kind of community. And, um, yeah, the, the, that time that those years in blog, blog, the blogosphere were very great. Was it blog spot? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Did you, what was your mother's relationship with her body growing up when you were growing um, up? Pretty good. Um, pretty n- neutral. I, I can't remember my mom talking negatively about herself in any way. She is much thinner than me and very like high femme. And so I, you know, it was just clear. It was like, she had the kind of body that people wanted. And so, you know, it didn't, it's funny how we learn things, right? She didn't need to do anything in order for me to make those connections just by seeing her exist in the world and seeing people respond to her through over the course of my life. And, you know, during the nineties, especially it was this just hot mess time of the Atkins die. I mean, all of that just garbage. And I always had this really challenging relationship with my body. I got a lot of negative feedback for my size, which looking back, it's like, so ridiculous because I was so small, but you know, there, I definitely got the impression that my body was a problem to be fixed. And that before I could do anything else with my life, like that was the first hurdle. So, you know, before anything else was going to come, I was like, you have to become something other than who you are in order to live. And when I was in my 20s, I think, you know, this started while I was in college. And then the few years after, I really started to get curious about what would happen if I just started living in the body that I had. And what would that be like? And yeah, and it was great. It was, it was a really beautiful time for uh, reconnecting with myself. And I think I felt very powerful in that. And partially because I was having a lot of these conversations that were very intellectually stem- stimulating about, about body politics, about why we come to see ourselves in certain ways and why, you know, how we learn 
about what matters and what doesn't. And we apply those learnings to ourselves. And it was definitely, it was personal, but it was also academic. I was really interested in the concept of it. Trisha here. And if you have not yet, please go to blissoma.com and check out these products. You can fill out a survey that's free about your skin and a real human being will look at that and write back to you with suggestions and results because Blissoma is authentic green beauty. It is cutting edge chemistry meets traditional herbal knowledge for the best of both worlds. And trust me, there are so many, so many, so many, so many skincare lines on the market right now. And some are promoted as green, as clean, and they aren't. That stuff isn't regulated. And it matters what you put on your skin. But also, it matters what you put on your skin but you want to be paying and using products that actually do make a difference on your skin and how it looks and feels. And Blissoma does that for me. It is incredible how fast I see the difference. Like if I go traveling and I don't bring their products because I don't have them in a travel set and I just use, you know, these other brands, that's what I've done. I don't know why. Anyway, I come back, I start using Blissoma again, and immediately I'm like, ha! Ah! Like, I oftentimes am barefaced and I'm shooting my social media stuff and everything. And I am 42. I have never had any work done. I don't really even get facials, no Botox, anything. And I'm like, wow, look at my skin. I think my skin looks better now than it has in my entire life. And that is due to Blissoma. Go check them out. Their products are free of petrochemical ingredients, artificial preservatives, synthetic colors, and fragrances. They don't contain any synthetic emulsifying waxes, affiliates, glycols, silicones, all the things, or any of the chemicals that are often put into things. Each product is researched and curated to target specific skin issues. They are whole herb extracts, unrefined oils, and fresh juices. Julie is a past guest. She is incredible, and she puts so much love, care, and attention into these products. Go do yourself a favor and check them out. They also have sample kits you can try out. Go to blissoma.com. You can use code CLAIMIT20 for any of their moisturizers. I personally use the Lift Moisturizer. I also love the Restore Oil and the free cleanser. Okay, go check them out. Blissoma.com. Use code CLAIMIT20 for 20% off. So, I mean, I feel like I still, after doing s continuous work, it's like the body image stuff for me is almost still a daily thing that I have to like, oh, oh, like pull myself out of. And I grew up with a mom who hated her body and was very vocal about it, was always dieting. And so I took that on from her, but also, yeah, the world of like, it's fat-free, it's Atkins, like whatever. I graduated high school in 99, so we're probably around a similar. And I, yeah, and it was like, I need to be like, just feeling like I need to be thinner, thinner, thinner. And like, yeah, looking back, I was like, wait, yeah, I might've been larger than some other people, but still like that idea. And even now, like I'm my, I'm not in a 
I'm in a bigger body than some, but I'm not. But it's still this constant, like how it feels like even like getting dressed is like, oh, is this flattering on me? Mm-hmm. Like, like, you know, like the ways that are like, oh, look in the mirror and then be like, oh, my arm. Mm-hmm. Like, look at all. And just like constantly like how, and it's, it's continuous. Like I've done all the work and continue and just like how it's like programmed so, so deeply within us to be like, there's something wrong there for just being in the body that I take great care of <laughs> and that really wants to be this size. Like it takes, it would take so much, it takes so much work for me to like be smaller that you're like, don't have a life besides <laughs> focused on being smaller. Well, and that idea that it's the most important thing about you. It's the most interesting thing about you. It's the thing. It's like, there's so many things about us that have nothing to do with how we look and, or that have a little bit to do with how we look or that we, sorry about that, that it just is this small piece, but it becomes everything. And it's incredible. It's made the most important. It really is. It does go so deep. But for women, yeah. And I know that, yeah, men struggle with it in different levels too, but it's just so freaking different. And you're right. And even like I no longer with the father of my children and like, oh, okay. Like when my mind was like, yeah, what I want to date immediately again with all of what, how I've lived my li- entire life. And it's like, oh, I need to lose weight first. I'm like, what? Who is still in my head? <laughs> like I hear it and like say, no F you, but it's just like, it's insane to me how deeply <laughs> it is like rooted. And I'm like, what? Well, and what? it's interesting. <laughs> I don't know how old your kids are, but I have a six-year-old daughter and she has just started talking about my body all of the time and in ways that are extremely triggering. And of course I try to just be, and I made a choice when my kids were born, which is however it is that I'm feeling about my body. I absolutely do not ever 100% of the time say anything in front of them. And I don't let other people talk about their bodies in front of them either. And so to hear her say things like this food is healthy, that food's not this, you know, like when I grow up, I want to be in a body like Nana, my mom, instead of you. And to, to just try to not be so triggered by it. I mean, it's triggering, but I think part of it too is trying to make sense of our mattering and also, and trying to make sense of who we see ourselves in. And, you know, similar to what I was talking about before about the blogs, you know, having Instagram feeds that are filled with people who are in various kinds of bodies is really just retrains my brain. Having, um, you know, I mean, the the world is great now. I mean, there's so there is just so much to consume in terms of difference and surround yourself with. But yeah, it's it's baked in. And I can't imagine that there'll be a time in my life where I don't I'm not having that conversation with myself anymore. Yeah, and that's what I've sort of had to accept that not that's just one of the many things that are like human brain like messes, you know, it's just like, okay, but it's in like, oh, see, oh, here I am again <laughs> thinking this. Whew. 
is that really what I want to believe? Like, that's a big trick for me of even like, wait, is that really what I want to believe? Is like, cause I'm not, it was like, is that what I believe? Like in part of me is like, yeah, unfortunately that's a deeply rooted belief that I've tried my entire life to change, but it's still gripping so hard. But like, just even asking myself, is that what I want to believe? Like, oh, you know, that's not, you can't wear that cause you're not flattering or you can't, yeah. You have to lose weight if you're going to date somebody. Like just even that helps me. But just seeing like, instead of being like, oh, I messed up again. I'm a bad body image person or whatever. Like that doesn't help. Like I feel like so often we're like shame ourselves for like having thoughts. I'm like, okay, there's that thought again. Okay. (laughs) I don't have to listen to it. But no, my kids, I have a five-year-old and a seven-year-old. And the five-year-old, I was like, yes, I was triggered uh, recently. And I I don't know, too, like being in school, I do think that when my mom was in town and they were like at the hotel with the mom that I think that because she one day, one day my youngest said to me like, oh, you have a fat belly mama or like whatever. And I was like, no, I and I, I got so triggered. <laughs> I, you know, I wish I hadn't got triggered, but I was like, oh, what? And I was like, but I'm like, I'm not, I don't like what? I don't even think I. Yeah, it's not like flat, but like, no. And then she was like, yeah, and like, you have a fat belly, like Nana or something like that. And so I, my mom likely probably said, yeah, I have a fat, like she still is like, I got it back on my diet and I love, love, love. she's in her seventies, <laughs> got to get back on her diet on this. Oh, my, I'm fat again or whatever. But anyway, so Arrow was saying that and I realized it was triggering, but then, and then yeah, it comes home from school. She says it again. And I re- realized I was triggered by the word fat. And then I'm like, wait, am I teaching her that fat is a bad word or that it's wrong because I'm being so like, don't call people fat. Oh, well, yes, people have different body shapes or this or like, yeah, they may have more fat on their body. Like, which just also too, like, wait, how do I talk to her about it so that she doesn't then think fat is bad or wrong? It, it is like an interesting thing. Like, I don't, I don't want people to go around like, yeah, she's fat because that's the truth, but like, and oh, not. It was just an interesting, yeah, how do I not get triggered of like, don't use that word and like, oh, yeah, they may have that, but let's not, like, some people are bigger and some people are smaller. And, but I was noticing that, yeah, it's like just so much, like, how, yeah, making sure that they do, like, just and can embrace everybody. And maybe she doesn't even think that's a bad thing or, you know, that it's just my conditioning. Yeah. Of, it's challenging. Yeah. So I identify as fat and describe myself in that way to my children and also have had a similar struggle because for obvious reasons, I'm very sensitive to the way in which that word is being used. And so explaining to a six and three-year-old that that it's a neutral term, but it can also be used as an insult and also that people who, you know, it's a neutral term, this isn't right, but that we live in a world that prefers and often violently so bodies that look a certain way. And that's not the way my body looks. And so I have received feedback from, you know, multiple avenues over the course of my life that the body that I'm in is not right, or it's not good, or it's not okay, or that I would be better if I looked a different way. And, you know, that that's fat phobic. And so it is, it is true. It's really challenging because it's, (laughs) it's hard to explain, I think, to a child. And I try to default to, it's just not polite to talk about people's bodies. However, I do find that for myself, similar to sexuality, similar to race, similar to, all of these different aspects about us. It's like, it is a part of who I am. 
So I don't want, you know, there's, there's a piece of like, we just don't comment about other people's bodies that feels like I'm colorblind or I'm, you know, erasing an aspect of people's experience. So it's nuanced. And yeah, yeah, I, I can't say I always do a great job (laughs) at it myself because usually, you know, I'm like, wait a minute, I've thought about this. Um, and I now want to talk about it again. My kids are like, peace out. I'm on the playground now. I do not care. <laughs> no, they're like, can we just Yeah, like you're that? like, come back. Okay. No. Now, now that I have figured out my dissertation, I am ready to talk to you about when you used that word the other day. And they're like, huh? Yeah. What? <laughs> yeah. The uh, window is so short. <laughs> 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 Trisha here and just wanted to drop in with some reminders of ways that I am here to support you besides this Claim It podcast. One of my favorite things is my Substack. You can go to trishahuffman.substack.com. I share in both written and short audio form there about four to five times a week. It is an incredible way to get these daily messages from me. They're called From the Heart. There's my daily inspiration app in the app store. It's called Own Your Awesome. I do still have some products in my store. We are liquidating the shop, so go before they are gone. Shop.yourjoyologist.com. I got the Own Your Awesome deck. I got my daily connection journal. I got some insulated tumblers with awesome phrases like any minutes is more than no minutes. And I also offer both one-on-one and group coaching support so that you can weed through the freaking noise of the world, the shoulds, and connect to you, listen to you, be making the choices that light you up, that are fulfilling for you so that you can enjoy your life now. And I really, big passion is working with people who are putting themselves out into the world in some way to keep them aligned with themselves to have that vision, alignment, and accountability. Accountability is a big part of my work because I get it. Life is busy, it's noisy, and it's full, but I know that you do want to show up for yourself. Okay, so hit me up. Feel free to send me a DM at underscore Trisha Huffman. Go to yourjoyologist.com. I gotcha. Okay. Uh, but so when, so you're writing the blog and it took off, did that become then your career from there or were you doing work outside of that? Like, how did it evolve into where you are today? Where, like you said, you are leading workshop and coaching and your, mm-hmm. is it your first book? Yeah. Needy is coming out. Yeah. Uh, so I was doing really great work and I really enjoyed it. But because I'm a perfectionist, I thought, you know what would be better than this is if I got my master's <laughs> from- And what was the work you were doing? Yeah. You know, because I was already kind of having these conversations with people that, you know, had a therapeutic lens to it. And it's, it was just, again, and this is, this pattern doesn't really exist in me anymore, but it was just, again, this feeling of, um, okay, I'm doing something that I enjoy. So now I have to do it perfectly. So I decided to go back to school and become a therapist because I thought, you know, that's, that's like, that'll have some real cred. Right. And when I think about that often too, I like look into programs. I'm like, wait, do I really want to go do this and invest my time just so I can put some letters? Obviously I would learn a lot. It would be great. But like, I realized that most for me, it was like, I have 
some letters and stuff. Yeah. Well, and so much money. So much money. You know, I could have gotten my education, probably an education that was just as good for much less somewhere else. But uh, I digress. So I went back to school and this was a time as well in uh, therapy where therapists, you know, it was before Instagram therapists. It was before you were allowed to be anything other than a blank slate. And so it was a real problem for me that I already had information about me online, you know, that I, that I liked to be more forward facing, that I wanted to incorporate myself, not, you know, make it about me, but I, I, I trended much towards a more feminist therapy model where you acknowledge that you're a person in the room. And I find that well, and I make up because you'd already had that experience with your writing and stuff of people were resonate by you sharing through your lens, through your story, and then probably like outwardly facing to them too. That yeah, that that would be weird to give up suddenly. Now, like, let me just put it in this angle. Sorry, I just <laughs> and also because it seemed you know healing is relational. It just it is, and. There are plenty of people who prefer that kind of therapy. There are plenty of therapists who prefer that model. But my website was a chronic problem for the two years that I was in my program. And they kept kind of asking me to shut it down. I was up for this really prestigious, you would do a practicum each year. And I was up for this really prestigious practicum spot. And they turned me down because of the presence of my website. Okay. So when you said... I was thinking you meant like you were stopping yourself or whatever from like modeling the regular therapist model, whatever. But it was like actually, I don't know, people rulers of them. Like, I don't know, people that were saying no. Like you're saying the th- this, your website is a problem. They were telling you to take down your website, that you weren't up for something because they didn't feel like you were like being an appropriate therapist or something. Yeah, there was just too much information. About so me crazy to me. On the internet. Which is, you know, in if it had been five years later, it would have been fine. It probably even would have been great. But yeah, and I, you know, it was funny because at that time I, I had this real breakthrough moment where I just decided I don't want to be a therapist the way that I thought that I did. Which was really another way of saying I don't want to do my life the way that I thought that I should do it. And I started to see how so much of my, I talked before about that, uh, micromanaging people's perceptions of me and the perfectionism and the way I had been making choices had never been about what did I want or what did I need? And it had everything to do with what is the right thing to do here? Um, What will other people approve of? What will I get external validation for? What yeah, what's right and good. And so that was really the first time in my life. And it was talk about confronting. It was very confronting because, you know, I had to say to my fiance who I'm not married to, you know, you don't really know me. Wow. I have never let you know me. We're getting married. You know, my friends, my, you know, it was really one of those things where, um, I had to do a lot of my own deep work around kind of who am I and who have I allowed myself to be and why have I gotten so just enmeshed in 
wanting to be liked, frankly. Yeah. And it was not fun, (laughs) but, but I ultimately decided not to become a therapist in that way. And I started my own business and I have been now coaching and running retreats and workshops and writing podcasting for the last 11 years and doing my own work, right? Doing what I help other people do, which is live my own life instead of what I think is expected. Yeah. So you, my book was F the shit. You know what that was like when you, yeah. I was like, oh yeah, I know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's so funny because when I first heard about you, gosh, I want to say Rochelle had a a mug maybe that had that on it? Probably. Or something. There was something visual in her field when we were on a phone call together discussing my book proposal, I think, that had the title of your book on it. And I was like, yes, that is, I I resonate. I love that. Yes. Which Rochelle, who we're mentioning, Rochelle Fredson, has been a past guest. And I'm guessing, so yeah, she must have worked with her to get your book proposal. Mm -hmm. So great. She's amazing. If you're if you're out there and you're like, I want to write my book, I'm gonna write my book. Stop messing around and just hire Rochelle. <laughs> Work with Rochelle. I wish I had done it sooner. I only used her for like my final touch. So I had to like painfully figure out how to do a book proposal on my own <laughs> and then keep shining it. Okay, but so that very confronting, I was gonna say moment, but it likely like what the reality of that because cuz my sort of moment came really young with realizing oh wow like back in high school which is why i start there of like oh my gosh like i am so worried about what everybody thinks about me i don't even know like yeah do i like am i allowed to like this music am i allowed to raise my hand and be smart like it was like because yeah what will then people think of me who am i i want to be cool so what is that like i had this experience of both wanting to fit in and stand out at the same time so really had to weigh all of these small things do i like this music i don't know <laughs> can i tell people i like this music so I had an aha with that really young, but, and so I thought I lived a life of once and I had, but then still like how deeply the shoulds were embedded in me. But so you having, and which then realizing the should thing anyway, has continued to expose so much, but you're sort of in a whole different place of had lived into an adulthood of realizing, whereas you're saying to your fiance, you don't even know me because you hadn't known yourself, I'm guessing. You're like, yeah. Yeah. I think I was 27 or 28 at this moment. And I, it's what is so interesting about being in relationship with yourself is I think we assume I'm just with myself all day long. So of course I'm acquainted with myself or something, but mostly. I live within my body and mind. So of course I know who I am. (laughs) Right. But mostly we don't, we're not that connected. It's like, I wouldn't know myself from a stranger on the bus. And so at that point I was so geared towards belonging and so geared towards keeping myself safe in that way that I was far more familiar with other people's expectations of me. And through also, you know, of course I came by it honestly, but uh, this very finely tuned ability to read a room and to know what people want from me. 
And it wasn't that it was a conscious choice of like, this is who I am and this is what they want. And that's what I'm going to give them. It was like, who I am is not even on the radar. And I am wholesale geared towards belonging. And, you know, all the while not realizing that, of course, that means I'm not belonging to myself. And that's the great irony. And really not having honest relationships with other people. And that's why I always felt lonely, even when I was in a crowd. And that felt sense of that just like dark place of if they really knew me, they might not like me. And I remember feeling just so afraid at that time of being bringing more of myself into my relationships and into my friendships and being afraid that people would leave and some people left and it really did suck but you know just like the exhaustion of holding yourself together in a certain kind of curated way day in and day out and no wonder so many of us are yeah, so tired. Yeah, it's like this constant calculation probably like that you don't even realize you're doing in many ways. Like yeah, when you say you're reading the room, like you're probably not even aware you're doing it. It's like, okay, who who do I need to be here to be? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm exhausted thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that other people's Yeah, other people's perceptions are somehow like the report card for how I'm doing. And now I have to at after every single social situation that I leave, when I want to like phone a friend and be like, was I okay? Was I too much? I still want to do that, but I don't do that anymore. And instead I remind myself over and over again that however people feel about me is their business. And that sucks. Because <laughs> I can't control it. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> Oh God. I was like, that's so true. But also I was not like, I thought that was the end. Whatever <laughs> people feel about me is their business, right? That's what you said. Mm-hmm. And that sucks because. And that sucks. What were you going to yeah, say? I mean, I think this is the thing about having written a book. I'm really just dealing with this in real time because you write a book You send this book, which is this proxy of you out into the world. And then all of a sudden people have this part of you in the privacy of their own homes. You're not there to defend yourself or be charming and say, I didn't mean it like that. Don't take it like that. Or you like me, you know, they're just going to read your words and have their own thoughts and feelings that have nothing to do with me. And yeah, so I'm just noticing in this moment of my life right now about how some of those tendrils still exist and how vulnerable it feels to have this next level of sending my book out into the universe and just knowing people are going to feel all kinds of ways about it. And frankly, I've done my job, which is write the book and show up for it as much as I can. And my job isn't to make sure that every single person on the planet likes me as much as I might want to Yeah. I know. It's so funny, that desire. Like I noticed last year or maybe in the last few years, because I don't remember anymore, (laughs) it's all melded together, of like me as this self-aware, confident person who's done so many things and share the messages. And still it's like really seeing how I was like really trying to win these people over that honestly were assholes. 
And I'm like, why was I trying to befriend and be like, like me to these judgmental assholes? <laughs> like, but this desire so much to like, because like, it felt like that would mean something. If, if I won over that person's approval, if they liked me, then that will mean something about me. Well, what will it mean? Like, mm-hmm. all the while, probably never asking yourself, do I like that person? Does their opinion matter to me? Exactly. Because I like then, because I had like then these things and then I'm like, wait, what was I doing? I've the entire time I've had an experience with this person. I have seen how judgmental they are, how this, how that. But why was I trying so hard to like win them over? <laughs> like, it's just so interesting. <laughs> um, Yeah. I don't even know what else. I, there was many things I was going to say, but I <laughs> keep going. So why this book? Where did this come from? And were you like, I'm going to write a book, and then this book came, or was this something like you, was you would already you were doing and working on, and was like, okay, it's time to make this a book. I, it the book was born out of a a course that I taught for five years in a row called Tend, and it grew out of some of the same work that we're talking about, you know, just this deeper level of realizing I don't, I'm not connected with what I need. I don't even know what is possible to need. And I certainly don't know how to ask anybody for what I need because it feels incredibly threatening and risky to do that relationally. And after my first child was born, I felt plunged headfirst into this facet of my work because I could no longer meet all of my own needs by myself in the corners of my life because I didn't have corners of my life anymore. I didn't have the energy or the resources to get by without asking anybody for anything. And all of a sudden I needed to be a much more vulnerable and real version of myself than I felt prepared to be. And it felt messy. And I had never set boundaries. I did not know that I was allowed to have expectations for relationships or <laughs> share those expectations with the people I was Just in hope that they're going to figure with. it out and they're going to do what you what? No, no. <laughs> Oh yeah. Tons of mind. And I think that's the thing too. Tons of mind reading. I had this belief that if my needs mattered and if I mattered by proxy, my partner would just know what I needed. And because they didn't seem to, then probably I was making too much out of it, or I didn't really need that thing, or the need wasn't that important, or, you know, I shouldn't ask for it. And As I started to do this work professionally, I realized how many of us struggle in this way by first even knowing what we are allowed to need, which is a really the same thing as saying knowing that we're allowed to take up space in our lives and in our relationships. And beyond that, okay, so once I know what are the actual skills of having these conversations with ourselves, with other people, what happens when you ask for what you need and the other person doesn't have the capacity to meet it? Does that mean you're nothing and terrible and you shouldn't have asked? You know, that's certainly what it meant to me for a very long time. Um, and so, uh, the, the, kind of structure of the book grew through all of these conversations and through teaching this. And 
it came to a head at a certain point where I started my podcast, which is also called Needy. And when I was, I, I created my podcast because so many of my clients were saying that I was the only person in their lives who talked about needs even neutrally, <laughs> just like, <laughs> never mind nicely. They were very accustomed to having their needs be something that they, you just like, don't talk about and play conversation. Like nobody wants to hear about that. And they didn't have a lot of role models for what it looks like to meet your needs in very real human ways. And so I wanted to start having those conversations intentionally out loud in public through my podcast. And that grew the kind of the combination of those two aspects of my work grew into this book. And it's funny when I, um, got my book deal, uh, for needy, my partner was asked if I was ready to be the neediest person in America. And I was like, yeah, you know, fucking somebody has to be right. And if, I just need to talk about what I need all the time and other people then understand that it's okay to need a ton of things because I do then great. You know, we need to have more role models when it comes to having these conversations openly. And I think that during the time where I wrote the book, got the book deal, came to this point where it's ready to be published, the public conversation on this front has changed so much, which is great. You're talking more about needs than I've ever heard that talked about before. We're talking about self-care. You know, back when I was in social work school, the idea that there would be self-care for mental health professionals was laughable. And that wasn't that long ago. You know, that was 12 years ago. So this is, this conversation is really running forward in such a beautiful way. But I think we still have a lot of uh, the okay, but how pieces to get to. And that's, that's really why I wrote this book. It has, um, it has a lot of just very tactile ways to get in touch with your needs and have these conversations. And I think we need those Yes. 1000%. And I, um, Again, confronting seems to be the, <laughs> the reoccurring theme. But I do think when you're saying like, yeah, there's more awareness and there's more talk, there's more information, but the how, like, I think that's what can stop people too. Because then the confronting of like, well, wait, then you're actually going to have to like speak up or to, you know, even like get, and sometimes it's confronting to figure out, wait, what do I need? Yeah. Like what? I'm allowed to have needs. And I noticed too interesting when you were bringing up the examples, then it was, you know, like asking your partner, then it's, oh, then I guess maybe I don't need that then or something. Me as someone who from a very young age came at the world from, I don't need you. That was like my projecting because I didn't feel like anybody cared about me. So I have lived my life. I don't need you. So watch me do it on my own. Watch me. I don't need you. I'm so independent. So to me though, when those things, like if, yeah, the person isn't meeting my, reading my mind or something, my internalization doesn't go that like, oh, I guess I don't need that. It's like, they don't care about me. Nobody cares about me. See, nobody cares about me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's like so interesting. Like, and I was, I, when you talked about it came coming up for you when you had your first baby, I remember how challenging it was to even ask my partner for a glass of water. Because again, why can't you read my mind? My glass is empty. 
but it was so fucking hard for me to ask, can you, as I'm breastfeeding the baby who hasn't slept at the bed, the this and do it all that, please like go get me. Like it felt easier to carry the baby downstairs with the cup to fill it up and go back upstairs than to ask. Like I realized, and it was like such a mind blowing occurrence. Like I was aware what the heck? And it's like, but I, part of it, again, like I can do everything myself for this, but like wanting that there, then it's like, took it as, it was just such an interesting thing. <laughs> yeah, it is interesting. And look, you know, beyond that, it's like, if I ask you once for a glass of water while I'm sitting here breastfeeding, you sure as hell should know I need one every freaking time. I remember when I was, uh, my oldest was a baby and I was at a friend's house and I was nursing her on their couch. And my friend's partner came over with a glass of water and was like, I know you need this. I was like, wow. Okay. So it is just interesting how some people really are available for what you need and some people are not. And by and large, it has nothing to do with you and it has nothing to do with what you need. It has everything to do with their capacity for meeting you in that and their interest in meeting you in that, which has to do with their attachment style and their, you know, current energetic stability, all of these things. There's so many factors, but I think that piece of how, what we make it mean when our needs aren't met and that story is really big when one of the skills that's so important is to get clear on it's like it's my job to ask it's my job to know it's my job to ask it's that person's job to have the capacity or not and to be able to share that directly instead of making me read their mind or saying yes when i know they mean no and it's going to be a shit show later all of that kind of relational shenanigans and it's my job to tolerate their response And there's so many places in that, what could be a simple exchange where we go so awry and make things mean everything about nothing. And um, yeah, so I think we need tools and I think we need to talk about it more so that we're not, you know, we, we're notorious. Humans are notorious for thinking we have it straight in our heads. We've gone through it so many times in our own minds. So surely we know it inside and out. And then the minute we write it down or we share it with a friend, we hear ourselves say the words out loud. There are things there that we didn't know were going to be there before. And so, you know, I think we all could do less of that. Like I, I got, I know it, I got it. And more of being in conversation around these things. You know, I got my needs met. I didn't get my needs met. I was so disappointed. You know, it feels like I'm going to be crushed by that disappointment. It feels like I should never ask again so that I never feel the way that I feel in this moment. And all of these conversations, you know, the more that we talk about it, the more that we realize it's not just a Um, problem unto us. You know, we are all trying to figure out what we need, how to communicate that, when to communicate that, and what style, you know, when you're not, I always say this about boundaries, like when you're just learning how to set a boundary, it's either you're screaming it, it's way too loud, or it's way too quiet. It's like, you're already out the door and I'm like, Maybe you could. Would you think that maybe one day possibly, Um, would it be okay if I didn't? (laughs) 
Yeah. And so we just, we need to be talking more about this. And I think we are talking more about it. Which well, I speaking just, of well. talking more about it, I make up for somebody who's listening and has not been someone who considered their needs, which I know it like, you know, too, from writing my book and having conversations with people who have read it. Like they're like, yeah, I've lived my entire life never thinking of myself or this, or I've never even thought to, you know, that. So like so many people have no freaking clue that they might be listening to this and like, what do you mean? What are needs? What needs? Okay. She wanted water. What? But like, what have you noticed are like, what, you know, like, what are these needs that a lot of people like struggle to communicate? And people are like, great, needy, what do I need? I don't know. What do you mean? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot of different schools of thought, but I tend to think about needs as something that you require and in order to exist or thrive, you know, in any situation, in a relationship. And that need might be, for more physical closeness or less physical closeness. It might need personal space or privacy or more connection or a glass of water or to move your body or to get outside. And we don't need the same things every day and in all circumstances. And so the more that we're able to be in conversation with ourselves and to get curious and to really give ourselves the space to answer the question, what do I need? Because sometimes, even if we'll ask, we ask with like our finger on the clock, like, okay, you know, I have uh, 30 seconds for this answer and go. And our bodies are slow technology. We may not have an answer in 30 seconds. We may not have an answer in 30 minutes. We may need to ask and ask again. The more that we get just familiar with our own inner landscape, the more that we're able to have these connection points and answer that question. I'm like, what do I need in this situation? What about now? And um, I think that the most important thing is being in connection with yourself as often as you are able. Because sometimes, you know, if I were to say, what do I need right now? It's really cold out and I'm not wearing any socks. I'm just wearing my slippers. I could need a pair of socks under my slippers, you know, and that answer will change in 10 minutes. And we're also not available to meet all of our needs on any given day. Some needs we can't meet by ourselves. And there are other people who may or may not be available to help us meet that need. And so it can be complicated, but I think for people who struggle with this, we often carry the story of I'm too much. And so that it's complicated can feel like, see, further evidence. It's too much. It's not worth my effort. And I don't mean it in that way. Instead, I mean it. It is complicated. It takes time. This isn't just a one and done kind of conversation that you're having with yourself. It's about connecting with yourself and being by your own side as you live your life and being curious. Like, what do you need? What do you need for breakfast? What do you need between now and that meeting in five minutes? What do you need in order to feel more connected in this relationship? Yeah. I mean, I think we're most, we're most intimately involved with the physical needs of our bodies, which can be a great place to start. You know, are you eating enough and well? Are you drinking enough water? Are you resting? Are you breathing? Are you moving? Are you getting outside? The things that we can feel the absence of and moving from there. But I love an open-ended question. Just what do I need right now? 
Yeah, love that. And uh, I totally, I totally get it. Um, one thing that I was, that I remembered as you were saying that and like was able to then see is that I've, I've noticed that people can end up losing sight of their own needs or abandoning their own needs in when they enter a relationship. Like, you know, I had a friend who the husband liked to stay awake late and watch TV. So then she would stay awake to like have that time with him because they were working and stuff. But then that didn't work for her. It's like noticing then when she finally like, no, I need to go to sleep. And so it's like making like, okay, great. Like two nights a week or whatever. These nights I stay awake so we can have that time. And then also I need to take care of my own needs. So it's like she needed the need of the connection to the partner probably, but also then was totally sacrificing her own needs. I'm like, oh, sleeping. And I still like to sleep in bed and that too. So like, yeah, just wondering too, like where I think when people get into relationships or life change or even, yeah, you become a parent, caretaker, all of a sudden you forget about your needs. It's like, okay, you do have to take care of these other living beings. And how can you also be meeting your needs even in the smallest way to be able to also meet the child's needs? Yeah. I think with parenting, it's so interesting too. I I get a lot. I get a lot of pushback from parents who are like, okay, but also surely my child is more important than my needs. Are you selfish? Am I selfish? You know? Um, And look, if you care about your kid, you have to care about yourself. I mean, you are the vessel for your parenting. If you don't have, you know, if whatever, you don't have kids, you're writing a book, you're doing this, you're doing that, you have a practice, you, whatever it is that you're doing, you are the vessel for that thing. And if you care about that thing, you, and you want it to be sustainable, you have to care about yourself too. And it can be really challenging. I find that especially when we get into relationships, some kinds of people, my kind of people have a tendency to sync up and, um, defer to, other people's way of doing things. And I noticed this happened for myself with my partner when we first started dating that they really love to have like a square meal at night. And my natural kind of eating style is to eat bigger meals for breakfast and lunch and then smaller meals at the end of the day. I'm just not as hungry. And I don't know. I just don't like, I'm not a meat and potatoes kind of person by default. And my partner is a professional chef and they like to make like, you know, meals like that look like a meal. It's like, I'm just like, I don't know. There's like some sweet potato and I put some black beans on it, whatever. It's good. It's great. And so it took a while to give myself that permission to eat when I was hungry, even if that's not when they were hungry to eat what I wanted to eat, even if it's not what they wanted to eat. And now on the other side of having kids to eat what I want to eat, instead of just like my kids, inevitably there is so much food waste. It makes me nuts. And it is such a practice to not just only eat their scraps and to eat my own things or things that I want to eat instead of feeling like, I should just, you know, whatever, eat their half of their grilled cheese sandwich or something. And again, it's that piece of what am I hungry for? And can I, can that matter to me? Even if it doesn't matter to anyone else, 
Um, even if everyone else is doing something else, something different, you know, what am I hungry for? And how does it feel to have that hunger fed full stop? Because it, it really is life-changing, I think, to Matt, to feel as though you matter and honoring and advocating for your needs in your relationship with yourself is how you show yourself that you matter to yourself, which is really important. That was so powerful. And yeah, back from where you started, I am always saying the same thing. Cause yeah, it's like yours needs. I focus on once, which there's a like, and I will be like, need what need what? Like, yeah, it's room for both or they blend in. Um, but so same thing, having that pushback. And I always like remind people like, okay, like who are you when you're the person that's constantly doing everything for everyone else? You, yeah, you're like rushing out the door because to do that or you eat whatever they want. Like you don't take the time to exercise or do those things that support you. Like for me, then I am like tense. I'm snap at people. I'm not as present because I don't feel as good in my body. But like when I do do those things that take care of myself, when I take care of my needs, and this is like one actual example, like when my kids are with me on the weekends and then we're like out doing adventure day stuff, I would just be like, okay, I have my kids on the weekend. So I don't exercise on the weekends. I do that during the weekday, whatever. Cause it's, yeah, it's too much going on. And, but then I would be like in the middle of the day, like snapping at them and tense and angry, whatever. So I made this rule of like, okay, I do, you know, at least 10 to 20 minutes, anything of movement before we leave the house on the weekends. Like I have to, I have to. And that also became the kids. But, and then because it's not as much as for me, it's for them. It's for the people out in the public. So I don't snap at them. Like, (laughs) you know, like when I have taken that time for myself, then like, yeah, the world benefits because I'm a more grounded, joyful, present, alive, grateful person. And that, yeah, then that spreads to my kids, that spreads to the people in line with me, that spreads to the person while I'm driving. I'm not like, oh, I'm like, go ahead. You you go ahead. You turn. Like it seriously does. Like when we are taking care of our own needs, it's not selfish because it affects everyone. There might be a little bit of like, no, kids. Yes. A mommy needs this 20 minutes. No, we can't leave yet. Like there's going to be some taking away, but it really adds to in the long run. Yeah. Yeah. We have a similar rule in my house around breakfast, which is that, well, I mean all meals, but it shows up the most with breakfast, which is that I will make everybody a meal and then I will sit down and I'm going to eat. I will make you 17 other things after because you don't want this and you want that and you want this or whatever. But only after I have eaten that first meal that I've made for everybody. Because what I found was, is I was like flipping a pancake, making an egg, getting a cheese stick. And inside I was getting so angry. And the the anger was, don't you see that I'm a human too? Don't you see that I'm hungry too? You know, don't you care about me? And they're not thinking about me 100%. It's not their job to take care of my needs. It's my job to take care of my needs. So, you know, teaching them is like, you're not going without. I have fed you one meal. I am going to eat this one meal. If after I'm done eating these scrambled eggs and toast, you want God knows what, I'll get it for you. But it's going to have to wait until then. That happens usually with my kids for dinner, even if like uh, there's three things on their plate and then I sit down to eat mine and they only eat one thing. And I'm like, can I have more of that? 
And I'm like, I'm eating, it's dinner time. I sat down now. I'm going to eat my dinner. You can eat those other things. And if you really only want another thing, then okay, I will get it for you after I eat. Like, I am not getting up. No, I have sat down with my dinner plate. You have some things there you can eat. And if you don't want to, then you will wait. So I'm like, I understand mine's for dinner, but it's the same pretty much. Yeah. Well, and it's that little feeling inside of like, don't I matter? Am I not a person who is deserving of regard just the same as everybody else at this table who I'm just regarding unendingly? And for me, you know, I write about this in the book. So much of it was coming to the point of realizing I was trying to outsource to other people what I was unable or unwilling to give to myself. And it's not that, you know, none of us are islands. We, it's not that we don't ask other people for things, but if I'm hyper conscious of whether or not I am, uh, mattering to somebody else, it begs the question of, am I mattering to myself right now? And if the answer is no, why not? And what would it look like to care for myself in that way, to matter to myself in that way? And I think for me, that's really the bedrock of a lot of these conversations with self of, you know, what would it be? What would I do differently if I were operating from that place of deeply mattering to myself? Love it. Love it. And it's like, that's the same, like I'm usually like how I get through my own stuff too. It's like, yeah, I'm getting curious and asking myself questions about like the stuff that that really helps us to be able to shift and see things differently. Okay. I'm going to ask you the questions I ask everybody. The first one is, what are go-tos to raise your joy levels when you may be feeling in need of joy? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. I think music, loud music, of and having playlists that appeal to me in different for different moods, because sometimes like you want to feel joy, but in a more subdued way. Sometimes you want to feel joy in a more loud and chaotic way. But I think music really helps me. Uh, also, a lot of sensory things, scents, uh, hot, like temperature, hot, hot showers, that kind of thing, like bringing in a, a one of my senses to shift my mood. Love that. Uh, okay. Ask everybody to apply this phrase to yourself. What is easiest for you is not always what is best for you, sort of like your default ways of being. So what is easiest for me is blank. What is best for me is blank. What is easiest for me is pleasing everybody else at my own expense. And what is best for me is setting boundaries around what I need in order to exist and thrive. Okay. The last question is the name of the podcast is Claim It, mainly because I feel that we are often chasing feelings based on what we think they look like. Like, oh, if I do this, then I'll mm -hmm. be enough, excess, excess, excessful, successful, <laughs> enough, fulfilled. And that we have been like trained to be like, what does that look like? Instead of what would that feel like? What does that feel like? And I feel like if we focus on what does that feel like, we actually can claim it or get pretty damn close. So what are you claiming for yourself right now? I really want to feel free. And what helps me feel free is not overcommitting to things. 
Love it. Thank you so much. I have enjoyed this conversation with you so, so much. And I can't wait for your book to be out in the world, which likely when this is coming out, it is out in the world, or maybe it's coming out the next day, depending on when, but yeah, go get it. I'm so excited for you and to see um, the impact this is going to have on the world. Thank you. I'm, I'm really excited too. Thanks for having me. I... No, I'm not even going to say that I hope you loved that episode and got something from it. I really, this was, I don't know, I just feel like every podcast conversation is getting better and better. I've had some amazing conversations lately that you are going to get to hear coming up, and this was really one of them for me. So I hope that what we talk about resonates, that you go get her book, Needy, that you also go get mine if you haven't gotten it yet or open it if you have it and have not read it yet, because right, I understand. I understand people buy the books and they may not read them. So go to once.com to get mine. You can find everything Mara at maraglatzel.com. Link will be in the show notes. And um, hey, we're here for you. Hit me up if you are like, yes, this resonates for me and I don't even know what I freaking need and I'm ready to do the things that I want to do. And why am I holding myself back and listening to the shoulds and the noise and stuck in comparison syndrome, and it's not going to work out because that happens. You're a human, but I got you. All right. I've got some space open in a group coaching container and in my one-on-one work. So you can DM me at underscore Trisha Huffman. Go to my website, yourjoyologist.com. Send an email, all the things. I am sending you so much love. And (laughs) let's right now think about what do I need right now? What do I need? What do I need for the rest of the day? What do I need to make today, you know, be more supportive for me?